we're smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we were in um, what's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer, or if you are Catholic, this would be the Our Father. Uh, we're still there because we covered two words last week, namely, Our Father. <laughs> So now we're going to kind of see what moves downstream from that today. So this is Matthew chapter 6, picking up in verse 7. This is what we read. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This then is how you should pray. And if you would join me, it's up on the screen behind me. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I'll take 14 and 15. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is the word of the Lord. So in the late 19th century, uh, there were two brothers who inherited land from their deceased father in Boston. And these, one of those brothers went off to war. And while that one brother was off at war, the other brother who stayed home in Boston decided to build on the inherited land. And he built a home that was so large that it only left this like marginal portion of the allotted land available. And he thought, well, certainly my brother won't be able to do anything with this. I don't know their family dynamic, but that's kind of crummy. So uh, the one brother comes back from war and sees what's gone down and then notices this. And, and we don't know if this is um, like history or legend or a combination of the two. It's probably that. But the, the brother who comes home from war sees how this other brother has taken the land and built this home and then proceeds to notice that, th that the brother loves how the light spills into his home. And so what that brother does is he takes that land that's left and he builds a home to block the light of his brother. Literally, it looks like this. This is now called uh, the, the Skinny House. You can see it right down there on that little sign. It's kind of a tourist attraction in North Boston. These homes, are, this is not one of a kind. There are other homes like this. They're officially called spite houses. There's another well-known spite house, uh, perhaps maybe one of the more famous ones. It's called Plum Island Pink House. It looks like this. Now you're going, that's not tiny, but it's awfully decrepit. What's going on? Well, uh, in a contentious divorce settlement, a husband was required, as per the settlement, to build the exact replica of the home that he and his wife lived in during the course of their marriage. However, the settlement did not stipulate where the house had to be, and so the husband went to a salt marsh in Massachusetts and built the exact replica with no neighbors and no running water. So what these homes show us is like this living color depiction of what happens when spite gets into our spirit and metastasizes. They become spite houses. This is this image that I want us to hold together as we're working through our teaching text today. Because 
This is not something that's abstract and out there. It's actually something that is in us. And with this in mind, just think back to our teaching text. This is the Lord's Prayer. And if you recall, this passage arrives as this sort of interruption to this larger block of teaching that we find in Matthew chapter 6. If you're a Bible nerd and you care about it, here you go. This is Matthew 6, 1 to 18. These are Jesus' instructions about devotion to God. What does it look like to be one who is devoted, not for public performance's sake, but for true devotion? And so there's this covering things of almsgiving or giving to the needy and prayer and fasting. And right in the middle of prayer, Jesus interrupts this whole teaching on devotion to God with the Lord's Prayer. And then at the end, in verses 14 to 15, there's an interruption to the interruption. And that's what we'll lean in a little bit to today, because right in that moment, uh, we get this insight into what's downstream in the Lord's Prayer. And so just to, to hear it again, picking up in verse 12, this is what we read, the interruption to the interruption. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's funny, whenever you talk about this, you get the conversation, well, I say trespasses. So then, uh, like, come with me. We're just going to do debts and debtors. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Verse 14, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. How are you doing? Just glad you came to church today to hear about that one. See, Jesus' prayer and his little commentary thereafter, it seems to come as this invitation to deconstruct the spite houses of our hearts and then invite us into a different type of dwelling, a new type of abode. This is called the kingdom of God. Now, now this is going to... Take us back a little ways, but the, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't start here. The Sermon on the Mount, I mean, for us, it started what feels like eons ago. But the Sermon on the Mount starts, and what comes right before that is that Jesus of Nazareth is making this announcement that a new kingdom is on offer. This is called the kingdom of heavens, where God's will, the creator God's will, is done on earth that's the invitation, that those who are on the margins will be brought in care and love to the center. This is the invitation of Jesus to actually love and set the prisoners free. And so this is what's in Jesus' imagination as we're thinking through the Lord's Prayer. This is the kingdom that's on offer, the new type of dwelling, to, to come out of your spite house and enter into something that's real and tangible, and that is the kingdom of heaven, this place of love, a residence of love. And that residence is built on the foundation of forgiveness. See, I, I also know that this is a challenging passage um, because when you start to go to commentaries about um, if, if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive you, the amount of like um, gymnastics, theological gymnastics to get around what Jesus seems to be saying here that's, I don't know, kind of convicting and pretty clear. So what I, just before any of you have like a theological freak out about like the divine arc of redemption or like the central role of grace or election or anything like that, just take a breath. I think this is simple. And now I could be wrong. And if you think I'm wrong, let's have a good chat. But this, this seems quite simple. When we fail to release others from their debts, it is like rejecting residence in the kingdom of heaven to reside in our own spite house. We are saying there's something on offer over there, but instead I will, like God might be able to forgive them, but I'm going to hold on to this. It is like choosing residence in your spite house rather than living in the kingdom of God that is built on this foundation of forgiveness. 
So before we lean into forgiveness, I just want to remember with you that we didn't just pick up in forgiveness, but there's something downstream. Because this is, this is verse 14 and 15, which is a commentary, a little footnote on verse 12. So there's a thing that we have to have in mind before we get to forgiveness. So are you ready for it? Okay, so this is kind of like review. Um, these are the words that we closed our teaching with last week. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. These might sound like strange words to you, but these are not just like a theological abstraction or some pithy Bible saying. These come from a love poem in the scriptures called the Song of Songs. And um, this, this, that particular thing, the Song of Songs, is this beautiful poem that would be read over the people of Israel after Passover. Passover is the, this high holy day for the people of Israel that would remind them that God has released them from slavery to freedom. And then in that place of freedom, over, like in a table, they would open up the psalm, and after the Passover meal, they would read this to remind them that they are God's beloved. They are no longer enslaved, but they are free, and they're not just free, but they are dearly loved. And so to come to the place of our Father is to remember that this is who we are. This is our identity. We are the beloved of God. So collectively, we just said this time and time again. Awkwardly, we said this time and time again. I am my beloved, and his desire is for me. See, these words are not just an abstraction. They help us to remember who we are in Christ. Because that, that place, the place of parental love, the Our Father, this is what, if you are maybe like a psychologist, you would call this like unconditional positive regard. This is what the Father is giving, is this unconditional positive regard. This is the entrance into the prayer. This whole prayer extends from this place of unexpected belonging which is our belovedness before the Father. So before you can ever get to forgiveness, or even forgiveness that is contingent somehow upon your capacity to release other people, like, we, we have to get to our belovedness. So how are we doing here, folks? Okay? Just thanks, Gray, for the thumbs up. I appreciate it. If you want to talk back to me, like, this is, I'm cool for that, but head nods are helpful. See, this whole prayer extends from that place of unexpected belonging, and, and therefore, it's from this place, from our belovedness, that we can move in to this thing. It's from our belovedness that we can begin to hallow God's name. It's from our belovedness that we can begin to pray for God's kingdom come, for his will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We can actually have a regard for our neighbor because we know that we are dearly loved. Everything is going to flow from that place in this prayer. But if we try and bypass this door, if we try and bypass our belovedness and just kind of get into the nooks and crannies of the Lord's Prayer, it's kind of like, and I was like, I don't, this might be a stretch, but it's kind of like looking at a house on Zillow and doing like even the virtual, for, like you just like are watching it and it's kind of making you nauseous because the house is spinning. I've been looking at Zillow and Realtor a lot recently. And uh, it's like looking at that and saying that you know what that house is like. It's almost, it's almost the same as saying, I've looked at that house on Zillow. Yeah, I know, I know exactly what that is. But you don't. You have looked at the floor plan. You've looked at pictures. But you don't know the smells. You don't know the textures. You, don't, you actually do not know what that house feels like. You don't know what the foundation of that home feels of it. You don't, they didn't show you the crack, by the way, that's in the basement. Like, these are things they're not going to show you their blemishes. So, too, like, you actually, to know what that house is like, what do you have to do? You have to go in the house. You have to step in through that door. And the door, in this case, 
is our Father. It's, it's the, our belovedness before our Father in heaven. So that's all review. So what happens if we step through the door? Well, this is where we get to the good stuff. If we step through the door, which is our belovedness before our Father in heaven, then you're going to get caught up with a God whose desire is to have his space, namely heaven, invade our space. Now, I know invasion language is kind of aggressive, especially as there's like an ongoing war in Ukraine. But um, this is the reality, is that there is this cosmic division that's taken place. This is what, if you read in the Bible, we'll call it sin. This cosmic division is this rupturing, this tearing apart of the union of heaven and earth. And so what we encounter in, in, the, in the Lord's Prayer is this desire for heaven and earth to be reunited, for God's space and our space, earth, to come together. This is the beauty of the Lord's Prayer. It's actually participating. God's inviting us. Just, just check this real quick. The cosmic king of the universe is inviting you and me in Des Moines to invite heaven to join together with earth, to completely consume it. Like, this is, this is amazing. This is what you will encounter if you step through that door as a God who desires for you and me to participate in something bigger than ourselves. That actually is something that's meant to move through us for the good of the other. This is called the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus is going to then weigh in on how his disciples ought to pray when he's interrupting this act of devotion, then he's going to invite us to remember who we are. He's going to invite us to remember who we are in light of our story because our belonging is going to make room for our becoming. And I, I liked the alliteration, the belonging and becoming thing going on there, but I think this is, this is what's going on here. Our belonging makes room for our becoming, if we know who we are, then we can start to live into that. It's not like something magical takes place if you like say a prayer of salvation or something like that and you're like, oh, well, now I'm, we hear stories about this. This is tangential, this isn't in the notes, sorry. Um, we hear stories about like radical deliverance where people encounter the living Christ through the spirit and they had an addiction or some, something in their life that they were bound to and they're released from it. Have any of you ever heard a story like this? Do any of you have a story like this right now that you, like, need to tell? Because it's probably way better than this teaching. No? Just checking. Okay. So we hear about these stories, but I have never heard a story where someone encounters the living Christ, is empowered by the Spirit, and then they're just like, a week later, I'm so mature. I don't, I'm not carrying around bitterness. I, I was, like, my words were seasoned with love. I, I was patient. Those things that used to irritate me, they didn't irritate me. I've, all of a sudden, I'm the most generous person. I don't even consider my possessions my own. It's like, like, in other words, I have never seen a person encounter Jesus and then be mature. And I don't think anybody has. Because the constant invitation of the New Testament is to live into who you already are, to become mature. This is something that takes a lifetime. But... Um, Maybe it's because I'm a millennial or I had a, a really privileged life, but, like, I got most things I wanted. <laughs> so I never really had to learn to, like, to, to grow into something because it was just, I expected that it was mine. We have a word for this. Do any of you know this word? You can say it. Entitled. Yeah. We are spiritually entitled. 
And this prayer is interrupting our spiritual entitlement to remember that um, our belonging makes room for our becoming. That is, if we are beloved of God, then we can have, like the scripture said, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And it also says that we are to grow up into Christ, that there is a both and here, that we're invited into this becoming. I love how Brennan Manning kind of makes all this touch down. This was, he's a priest who was no longer a priest, but you may know his work from Ragamuffin Gospel or something like that. Brennan Manning makes this touchdown. He says it this way. I, if I am not in touch with my own belovedness, namely who I am before the Father, then I cannot touch the sacredness of others. That there is actually this inhibition that I experience if I don't know who I am to fully see the others around me. And this is the flow of Jesus' prayer to kind of invite us into this divine dance, to remember who we are, to who we're talking to, that we're invited into the restoration of all things in this prayer which leads me to where I want us to spend the bulk of our time. And we could spend weeks on all of these aspects, but just for today, um, forgiveness. Hear this again in verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Um, How's that going? Maybe you feel a little uncomfortable right now, and it might be the heat in this room, or it might just be that there's something welling up in you. So I was reminded this week that this whole verse, verse 12, it turns on three words. It's these words, as we also. See, forgiveness comes as we also release forgiveness. And and I don't think that this should offend any of our theological sensibilities. Like, I don't actually think that this should frustrate grace or God's, like, God as the sovereign king, even though his sovereignty is frustrated by sin. Like, I, I actually think that this is a beautiful reality. But Jesus, anticipating some pushback of, like, hold on a second, you're telling me that I need to forgive them, those people who did that thing to me? And he he then gives us this little footnote in verse 14. He says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Which is basically this expanded version of what he already said in verse 12. It's like he's doubling down on this thing. Because there is something about our capacity to release others from their sin that has a direct capacity on our bearing to receive forgiveness for our own. It's really easy to live in our own spite house. And did you notice um, in the, the first one, the, the small house in Boston, how it was joined right up against the brother's house? It was almost like the whole world of that home was in, like the inflection point of that home's life was the brother. It was like ev- all the energy was there to block the light. You almost become obsessed and caught up in that spite. See, when we fail to release people from their debts, it's like rejecting residents in the kingdom to just dwell in the spite house of our own making. And this prayer is Jesus, I think, kind of knocking on the door of our spite houses and inviting us into a different type of dwelling. How are we doing? But before we can go any any further, I think we have to have some clarity around sin, so um, you're welcome this morning for some clarity around sin. See, when, uh, when you start talking about sin in church spaces, um, depending on the tradition you've come from, you might hear some different illustrations. Maybe one about missing the mark, so that there is a, a target that is set to be had, and yet what you have done with your life, if you, you've missed that target, you are off the mark, and that is a part of understanding of sin. 
you might have also heard sin simply as an immoral action, that there is the community of eternal love, what we know as the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that there is a moral fabric holding that community together and that that moral fabric has been compromised and when you embody the compromised version of that, that's this immoral action. Generally, you hear this around sexual things or maybe that's just where I've heard it. That too is an aspect of sin, of an immoral action, moving away from what that moral fabric of the community of eternal love is. And you might have also heard it something as simple as like transgressing God's law. You'll, you'll see this pretty regularly in the, New Test- or the Old Testament where um, these laws come forward. And some of these laws are weird. They're about like boils on skin or um, what kind of hair is growing in a mole. Um, if you're in Leviticus, those are the things that you're reading. There's just, they're weird and obscure because they're contextual for a people. But what comes forward is this idea of transgression. So here's, here's what I mean by transgression. Have any of you ever seen this, uh, like no loitering signs in front of, uh, I don't know, like a little place? Please raise your hand if you've seen a no, yes, okay, thank you. Now this illustration will work. When did they put the no loitering sign up? Yes, thank you. Probably after people were loitering. This is how much of the law in the Old Testament comes to be. (laughs) This thing happens, and it's like, oh, that's not consistent with who I am and who you are. Therefore, I just want to remind you, this is who you are. So these are ways that sin is talked about as missing the mark or being outside of the moral bounds or simply transgressing God's law. And these are all helpful aspects, I think, but in short, to kind of get at the fabric of forgiveness and what we're talking about here, sin is this. Sin is a failure to love God and others by not treating them with the honor they deserve. See, something distinct about humanity is that they bear God's image, which means that humanity is distinctly called to push the bounds of flourishing out into all of creation as ones who represent God. I don't know if you knew this this morning, but you distinctly and uniquely represent God in all of creation. That that is something that like a snail does not put, like a snail is not pushing the bounds of flourishing. A snail is like giving glory to God, but you in your distinct capacity, like have the means to bring delight into the world and to honor people. To fail to do that or even to harm someone, that is what the scriptures would call sin. And the challenge, I think, that I feel, at least preaching a sermon on forgiveness in 2022, is that even if we agree theologically, and even if you are not, like, annoyed at my definition of sin, whether because it's not precise or too precise, like, even if we're kind of on the same page, there's still this thing, bitterness feels good. Am I alone in this? Let me say this. I think bitterness feels great. I enjoy a good spite house. I, I like the layout. I don't care if it's really narrow. There's actually, if you Google uh, spite houses, you'll find one in Seattle that's, lit, I think it's, it's something like 56 inches at one, at one end of the home because that's how much they hated that person. And I will build a home that is literally just a bit wider than a door. That's a great, I love being in that place sometimes. I feel justified in that place. I feel like, I'm like, yes, that vindictiveness is there. And generally, it's because the other person, I know they're wrong. And if you have a little bit of idealism in yourself, um, then that may be a place that you often find yourself residing. See, the bitterness feels good. See, we're not a culture that merely, like, takes offense. We don't just, like, take offense. We nurture our offense. 
And then what we do is we adorn our offense. We adorn it. We put like jewels and we bedazzle it. And then with our offense, we actually raise that offense up. And then we allow that offense to like speak into our lives. And not just speak into our lives generally, but to become the loudest voice in our lives. To where that offense becomes part of who we are and how we see ourselves. I was out at breakfast and Jess and I had like a little, we like went away and we we're sitting there at a table and there was a group of, I don't know, like 20, 30 somethings and they were just pissed the whole time. Every remark was about something that was said. There was one remark about how her mom went to a store to get some clothes and then they didn't have her size, but they got the size off the mannequin, but she couldn't purchase it because it was not available for sale because it was on the mannequin. And then there were F-bombs and disgust and outrage. And I was just, that is the image that came to mind. It's like, oh, and I was resonating. I felt myself getting like, revved up. I was like, yeah, how dare they put that, how dare they? There's a, a columnist, an essayist at the New York Times who, who calls this outrage porn. And maybe that language feels a bit harsh, especially in church or something, but I think it fits. So this quote is a bit lengthy, but it, but it draws out how we nurture our outrage. This is Tim Kreider. He says, so many letters to the editors and comments on the internet have this tone of thrilled vindication. These are people who have been vigilantly on the lookout for something to be offended by and found it. Obviously, some part of us loves feeling right and wronged. But outrage is a lot like other things that feel good, but over time devour us from the inside out. Except it's even more insidious than most vices because we don't even consciously acknowledge that it's a pleasure. We prefer to think of it as disagreeable but fundamentally healthy reaction to negative stimuli, like pain or nausea, rather than admit it is a shameful kick. We eagerly indulge again and again. It is outrage porn selected specifically to pander to our impulse to judge and punish to get us off on righteous indignation. Some part of us loves feeling right and wronged. There is something about our capacity to release others from their sins, from their harm against us, from their failure to recognize the dignity of the image we bear. There's something about our capacity to release others from their sin that has a direct bearing on our capacity to receive forgiveness for our own. And when Jesus' communities are like popping up in the wake of the resurrection of Jesus. Would you believe it or not? But like, this is a thing that's there. In the first century, spite houses exist. And so to a community there, one author in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says this, in your anger, or in your anger, do not dishonor one who bears God's image. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Now, I want to make clear here is that there is a place for anger. If you're a person, you're like, I'm kind of an angry person. Um, if you've ever met my wife, Jessica, she may never, you may never get this, um, but ask her if she's an angry person. It's a great conversation. Um, she'll say, yeah, but you may never see it. It's like underneath the surface. 
And some of the stuff that she gets angry about is worth getting angry about. Like she, she will see certain injustices taking place that I don't even notice. They're not on my horizon, but they seem to just be enlarged in hers and they're worth being angry about. The, this verse here about being angry and not sin is not vilifying anger. It's actually to say that anger is a place that the enemy of our soul can give way to something destructive to us. See, the language that's used there, this language of foothold, this is explicit military language. This is about gaining a strategic advantage over another in a military campaign. So the encouragement here is, is to not allow that place to reside in your inner woman or your inner man. Instead, picking up in verse 31, just try this on. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling. Any brawlers in here? Just got to get rid of it. Slander along with every form of malice. And now just stop right there. This sounds kind of flippant, does it not? Just get rid of it. Yeah, just throw it out. Like, you know, like, but it's so, it is entrenched in there. And you're like, yeah, okay, so how am I going to do this? Verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ, just as in Christ God forgave you. And I just want to pause again right there before we go into chapter five. Um, This is written to a church. This is not like writing to the New York Times. This is not writing to, I don't know, the Roman centurions or anything like that, to local magistrates. This is writing to a community following Jesus. And so we pick up then in verse 5, or 5, verse 1, follow God's example. As dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, that foundation of forgiveness that is like literally that, that place of foundation, we, we see it right here. This is what it de- it's describing. Just as Christ loved us, namely the community of Jesus, and gave himself up for us. There's no doubt that forgiveness and Christ giving himself up for us are pushed together in this, that they come back to back. And so if any of that stuff, and I would say for us here today, if any of that stuff, if bitterness and rage or anger or brawling, slander, malice, like if any of that is inside of you, we would do well to get rid of it, to make every effort to get rid of that because it stands as a place that then the enemy of our soul can move against us to actually compel us, to invite us back into the spite house. So how do we actually like rid our hearts of bitterness? Well, in a a word, forgiveness. The the spiritual writer Ronald Rollheiser puts it this way, only forgiveness analogous to dialysis. Now I'm not like a medical doctor, obviously. Uh, My understanding of dialysis is that it functions like your kidney, it like pumps the impurities out of your body if your kidney is failing. So dial- like forgiveness, analogous to dialysis, pumping those impurities can take violence and hatred out of a relationship. See, there is a good chance that you are sitting here with thoughts like, but Kyle, like, you don't know how deep the hurt runs. You don't know what they did, and you don't know how often they did it. You simply don't know. And you know what? I think I'm okay with forgiveness. I want some forgiveness. God can forgive them, but I, I simply will not. And if, 
if that is on par with your internal dialogue, you're right. I have no idea about the hurt. I don't know how deep the hurt goes. I don't know if you are the one who hurt the other person. I don't know if you are the one who are on the, the like, receiving end of that. What I, what I do know is that Jesus is inviting us into the type of world where forgiveness has a real impact. Like it actually has the capacity to heal us. I want to pursue that. But I also don't want to make forgiveness sound cheap. Because there are, I think some of us, you've encountered real trauma, who for, like forgiving in that moment just flippantly, that would actually exacerbate the pain. So this is something that we would do well to step into carefully. So how do we do this? I, this is by no means exhaustive, but I just want to give us some, like, I don't know, some scaffolding to stand on. These are things that I've received. I haven't, like, imagined these myself. These are things that I'm actively trying to work out. And it's just three things, honesty, humility, and resolution. So how do we practice forgiveness? How do we actually move into this place of pain? Well, honesty, we have to remember who we are. Remember, this whole prayer, the whole movement of the Lord's Prayer is downstream from our identity as the beloved of the Heavenly Father. So we remember who we are, that our belonging then makes room for our becoming, to become the type of people for whom forgiveness is a natural response. See, honesty kind of moves along two axes. There is recognition, and then there's remembrance. See, if we're going to release another person from kind of the tyranny of our bitterness, then, then we have to do some reckoning. We have to remember. We have to remember the wrong that is holding us there. And again, when we do this remembering of this past hurt, this may be something that we would do well to do with a trusted friend, to do with a mentor, to do with like a mental health professional, to go back into the places of pain and name those pain. Believe it or not, like it presents itself in the present as painful. And it can draw up all sorts of other stuff. So this is not a light thing. However, this is something that Jesus gives to his followers to practice daily, to enter into a daily practice of forgiveness. So if this is going to be something that marks this community, where we can be the type of people who increasingly release people from their sin, then this is something we would do well to start with, is honesty, to recognize the hurt, to name the hurt, and then to, to remember who you are. Remember that you are God's beloved, that his desire is for you, that your belonging actually invites you to be formed by love because it's in the security of your belovedness that you can then start to move toward those painful things. This, I just want to say this. If, um, if your hope in following Jesus is to avoid the pain or the hurt, don't follow Jesus. Because what Jesus gives us the capacity to do is to move into the place of pain because he accompanies us. He will not abandon us there. He actually has the strength to move us in. Our weakness is where the strength of God is brought to completion. So this is the type of journey with Jesus. And if you want something easy, my, my strong encouragement is to, to not follow Jesus, which feels um, very unpastoral. So please follow Jesus because there's life and freedom and vitality and it probably will hurt. It's not an either or, but mostly a both and. But with that place of honesty, I think we can begin to move into humility. And I put honesty before humility for no particular reason. <laughs> I don't know if these are steps, but it's just the way that I've begun to work this out. Humility essentially invites us to own our part. 
And I, again, I just want to tread so carefully here because there are instances, and these are not like peripheral or minor instances. There are real instances where there's nothing to own. Like you are a victim of harm. There's some sort of holy irony in this teaching. Um, this was supposed to just be one teaching last week on the Lord's Prayer. And then you get into it, and there's like two words, our Father, and it like, I don't know, was I, how do you get past those two words? So then we have another week, and I didn't even know it was June 19th. And I, I, this is not like an attempt to make church political. By the way, Jesus said he's Lord, so from the beginning of it, church has always been political. But there's something about recognizing the humanity of others in the, the nation that we live, that we have a nation that is fraught with racism and slavery and bigotry that is not just in the past, but is still in the present. And the church has a, has a role to play in that. If you, if you want to read a book on this, White Evangelical Racism by Anthony Butler, whether you agree or disagree, is illuminating. She tells the stories of ministers, people who are preaching the good news of Jesus, seeing people come to trust God, are also the ones who are upholding slavery and the removal from the United States, from the Union to the Confederacy. So this is just the tattered history that we are a part of. Humility makes space for us to own our part in it. So for us, I think it's just a place of, of collective remembrance. And repentance is not just turning away one time. It is like repent to then live in keeping with that repentance. And I hope that this makes you uncomfortable because look around. There is no black person in our church, and that is to our shame. So how can we become a community that is like open, not just open generally, but is moving toward and by God's grace, this will be a community that begins to reflect back something of a beloved community where it's not just people reflecting one another back to the other. But humility is this place where we get to own our part. And there are some times where the owning of your part is to own that you are not the harm that was done to you. Is this making sense? That humility is in some sense having the courage to say that you are not the harm that was done to you. And on the flip side of that, to say that you may have participated in that harm. And in all of that, because you are going to that place of pain in your identity as one beloved by God, you don't have to hold yourself together. God can hold you together and a community in the name of Jesus can do the same. See, humility is where we can resolve to move toward the other as God has moved toward us in Jesus. And lastly, as we move to close here, um, resolution. Have you ever heard that little statement, love keeps no record of wrongs? We do. Pain resides like in our bodies, in our memories. Have you ever had a moment where like something just comes up out of nowhere? You're like, where the heck did that thing come from? I haven't thought about that in 13 years. The, the creator God there's this line in the scriptures that blows me away. As far as the east is from the west, how far is that? that that's the, like, this, this, the forgetfulness of God. Like, the creator God will literally forget those things. Like, we're, we're walking around actively remembering our sins, and God's like, what are you talking about? Are, are, are we tracking here, People? Or are you just like caught up in like a spirit of repentance right now? And that's what I'm seeing on your faces. Like, there's something about the living God who has released us. 
See, the resolution that we get to make is not drummed up by our own willpower, but is actually the living God who in Christ, like God entered into the mess in Jesus of Nazareth to bear the burden and weight of sin so that we could be released from the power of sin, which is death. See, just to linger one moment longer, this is, I think, a, a place that our church needs this. I need this resolution because there's something about that bitterness, that spite house that Jesus is inviting to release me from. But when I look around Des Moines and I look at communities of faith that are flourishing or coming out of the pandemic, and it's to my definition of flourishing, right? Like it's generally like, oh, their budget is um, intact or they have, they're, they're growing in, by leaps and bounds. And I, there's something in my spirit that just goes, And then in that moment, like, faces start coming up of people who've left our community, who just, like, what feels like just bailed. And in those moments, I, like, there's an invitation. And so I'm going to share with you what I've been doing, not to do this, but um, in some sense to say this is actually possible. If you're a little bit more extroverted or if there's nobody in your house, try this one on. Like, yell these things. I'm in the bathroom the other day, and these people are coming to my mind. And so I'm like yelling their names, not like yelling at them, but because I do not want to reside in the spite house any longer. So it's like the hurt, I'm yelling it aloud and yelling their name of just like, these are things, maybe that's helpful for you. The bathroom just felt like the appropriate place. I don't know why. Um, I'm not saying go into your bathrooms and start like yelling things when no one's home because it could be awkward if your roommate comes home and they're like, what are you, what are you doing? Um, the other one that is more tangible and maybe more accessible is just journaling these things. Like I think that there is a point to getting these things out, to resolving this, not just in the privacy of your own thoughts, but to resolving these publicly. Because if we want to become the type of people who live in, into forgiveness, this is something we'll have to practice. So consider this like your practice for the week to actually try this on.